All right. Hello once again to all of y'all out there, all of our listeners out there in parts unknown of the Cotton Belt from the San Joaquin Valley in California all the way to Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, We are back after a brief one-episode hiatus. Y'all, please forgive us. We um, have been fairly busy here in the Cotton Grower offices. Uh, We were really caught up in May issue production uh, two weeks back when we were scheduled to bring y'all our regularly scheduled podcast. It would have been episode 16 then, but um, like I say, we're caught up in that issue production. Jim, for his part, was very busy out there at the Texas Cotton Jenners Association trade show in Lubbock that we go to every year, and I know he stays busy. He gets out there and does grower interviews. He's walking around shaking hands at the trade show itself. And if you played his cards right, he ate a good steak at Las Brisas. Did you come up with that? No? I don't know. that I, I certainly didn't get to Las Brisas on this trip, but I will say I did have a great Texas uh, ribeye that uh, that covered a platter basically the size of a cafeteria tray. Oh, so, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> mission accomplished. Yeah. Where did, which, which one did you go? Did you go to Double Nickel or? No, actually, we stayed up at the, uh, the Overton in the Pecan Grill. Oh, nice. And had a, uh, a nice meeting and, and dinner up there. It was uh, greatly appreciated and uh, and a great way to start the visit because I got to, went straight there as my plane landed in uh, at Lubbock. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, and I know the way the way those, trip, those trips go, you know, we get to Lubbock a handful of times a year. We're based here in Memphis, as, as most of y'all likely know. And so when we get to Lubbock, there's so many people we need to see in the little span of two or three days when we're out there that, uh, man, we stay busy. We stay in that road getting out there to see farmers and seed companies and uh, industry allies, good friends at PCGA and PCCA, and, um, or rather PCG, I should say. And so, uh, anyhow, keeps us busy. I know Jim stayed busy out there. Hence, we did not bring you episode 16 two weeks ago. We are bringing it to you right now. Please forgive us. Uh, today is Thursday, April 21. It's raining outside our offices, or at least it's threatening to rain right now. You guys don't hear it pounding against our window, so uh, it is not raining at the moment, which is why we are in here during this brief respite. Um, we know that it won't be raining forever. In fact, a little later on, Jim is going to give us a crop progress report. We know that many of y'all have started planting and uh, you will be gearing up to do that uh, all across the Cotton Belt in the coming days and weeks. With that in mind, I want to uh, pause during our our little normal intro run-up here uh, for this podcast and plug ourselves uh, at this point. I I know I'm preaching to the choir inherently because you guys are already listening to the the podcast if you're hearing this right now, but it's production season, it's planning season, we know that you guys are going to be spending more time in the coming months in the cab of that tractor, in the cab of that planter, uh, in the cab of the truck, um, trying to keep yourself entertained during those long hours. Um, and and I know from riding along in the cab of the truck with my stepdad when I was a kid, there's only so much sports radio you can listen to. There's only so much political talk radio, so much Rush and everybody else that you can listen to. Give us a spin when you're out there, you know, when um, – when you're when you're when you're struggling for, to keep yourself entertained in the cab of that equipment, uh, let the Cotton Grower Podcast keep you entertained on some of those busy days while you're driving. You won't regret it. Uh, and tell your buddies tell your buddies the same. Tell them if you appreciate our our podcast, be an evangelizer for uh, 
the Cotton Companion. I know that I am uh, do that for various podcasts that I listen to. I would hope that y'all do it for us if you do indeed enjoy us. So we would appreciate it. With that in mind, we've got a great show lined up for you today. We are going to start, like always, with Jim leading us in a brief discussion of the latest breaking cotton news from all around the globe. Um, again, it did, uh, today's news segment does take on a global uh, tint, uh, but we'll get to that briefly. After that, we're going to uh, bring you an interview that Jim conducted while he was out there on the High Plains a couple weeks back. He spoke with uh, Reese Langley, who is the National Cotton Council's sort of uh, D.C. liaison. He represents the interests of you guys, the American cotton farmer there on Capitol Hill. Uh, Jim, what all did you guys discuss while you were out there? Well, we, uh, we covered a, a, a broad range of subjects because Reese was there primarily to, uh, to speak with the Plains Cotton Grower meeting. Uh, and in that, he, he touched on several things that we also went back and revisited during the interview, things like the, uh, the upcoming appropriations bill, which I believe has just cleared the House uh, today, yesterday or today in terms of the Ag Appropriations Bill, so that's underway. But also talked about things like the cottonseed policy and some of the new economic assistance programs that are, uh, are currently being considered. Uh, talked a little bit about the the new actively engaged in farming rule that uh, I don't know will have that much impact on in the cotton market but could certainly have an impact in some other areas. Uh, the commodity marketing certificate program uh, and some of the trade challenges that uh, that US cotton is facing right now. So uh, we, we sat down for, for probably about 13 minutes uh, on the interview that, uh, that we'll be bringing you here shortly. Uh, but it's, uh, it covers a broad range of subjects. Reese is a great guy, and, uh, and we had a great, great visit. Yeah, and, it, and, and we know that when he's in Lubbock, he's just as busy as we stay, so we certainly appreciated him taking some time out. He's a, he's a good guy to talk to if you want to know. You know, all of the – I feel like the council – we actually had a lunch earlier this week with uh, Marjorie Walker, who was, uh, does – Gosh, what's her position title there? She's director of communications. There you go, and, and serves as the sort of the media facing uh, uh, face of the council in a lot of ways. And and I was talking about this with her. That I feel like the council has so many irons in the fire so often that even us in the media don't realize all the various battles that they are fighting on behalf of uh, American cotton. And uh, Reese Langley is certainly on on those front lines. He's a good guy to talk to. So. Again, we appreciate it. You won't want to miss that interview. We will bring it to you uh, on the back end of this episode. So stick around with us uh, after this break. We'll get to that interview. But first, we want to get into the hard news of, the, of this uh, most recent couple of weeks. So hang out with us. We will be right back after this break. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. 
In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Well, welcome back. As, as Beck said, we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about some of the, the more newsy items impacting the cotton market right now. Uh, we're going to start with uh, USDA's crop progress report that was issued uh, early this week. Uh, we Actually, USDA's been working on the crop progress report for the last couple weeks, but this is the first time that we've seen some significant activity in cotton planting. So just to give you a quick summary at this point, obviously we're just getting started uh, with cotton. Uh, I think of the 15 cotton producing states that USDA surveys for the crop progress report, uh, we're looking at basically 7% of the crop at this point on average has been planted. Uh, that is, uh, if you look at it from the five year average that you normally compare this with, uh, we're three percentage points behind at this point, which really and truly in the big scheme of th things is pretty insignificant. Uh, obviously, three states, uh, Arizona, California, and Texas are both in double digit plantings at this point, the majority of it being in, in, out west with Arizona and California. Texas has about 10% of their crop planted and that pretty much represents everything in South Texas at this point. So it's nice to know the planters are rolling. That, uh, that things are moving along and the early reports that we're seeing out of the fields are that uh, we're off to some pretty good stands and uh, fingers are crossed for a good good year. Yeah, well, especially for us as we look out the window and it's another gray, <laughs> you know, I feel like every podcast day it looks like this outside, but I mean, it's it's rained a good bit this spring. Yeah, obviously, I mean, if, if farmers need rain, they should just call us and ask us to schedule a podcast right, recording. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so it's reassuring to know that somebody, at least somebody out there in the Cotton Belt is, is getting some planning done this week. Yeah, this week. is sort of reverse meteorology on our part. Right, right. Uh, the next, the next segment or the next item I want to uh, touch on briefly is uh, USDA's the Farm Service Agency. Within the past week, announced the 2016 crop loan rate differentials for both upland and for the extra long staple or Pima cotton. Uh, these differentials, some people call them uh, loan rate premiums and discounts, uh, are are calculated every year based on the market valuation of various cotton quality factors for the last three years. It's some sort of a nice secret formula that only USDA and economists understand. Uh, it's well above well above the head of uh, of journalists like us. We just sort of go with go with the information. Uh, these these loan rates are adjusted by the Commodity Credit Corporation uh, using differentials so that the cotton loan values reflect differences in market prices for color, staple length, leaf extraneous matter, micronair, length uniformity, and strength. So uh, the numbers that they have put out for 2016, the crop differential schedules, uh, then will be applied to the 2016 crop loan rates. Uh, it's based on a loan rate of 52 cents per pound for the base grade of upland cotton and 79.77 cents per pound for the extra long staple. Uh, each of these, of course, is provided to an individual cotton bale based on the quality of each individual bale as determined by classing measurements. So uh, that's, uh, that's the baseline we're working with this year, folks. 52 cents for cotton, for upland cotton, and 79.8 cents roughly uh, per pound for Pima. 
The other item that we want to talk about is, uh, as Beck said, we are going, going to step over into the international side a little bit. Uh, because of the, we've, we've had some action on the long rumored, long simmering uh, report out of Turkey, uh, the concern that the U.S. had been dumping cotton into the market and, and damaging their cotton industry. Uh, this week, in spite of uh, a lot of data showing that, that actually the, uh, there was no injury whatsoever to the Turkish domestic cotton market, uh, the government of Turkey went ahead and uh, decided to impose a 3% duty on all U.S. cotton fiber imports into Turkey effective immediately. Now, Turkey is, is probably the second largest export market for U.S. cotton at this point. Uh, they are basing this on, on their own findings of the, uh, the anti-dumping investigation. But these duties, particularly when you include the cost, the insurance, and freight, have, have uh, the potential to put U.S. cotton at a real competitive disadvantage in Turkey compared to cotton produced in other countries. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's very clear when, when you look at, the, at the, the facts behind this program. Uh, this was an investigation that Turkey started back in October of 2014 in response to several U.S. trade investigations of Turkish steel imports. So basically what we're looking at is a, is a political action uh, based from the perspective of you look, uh, you have questions about our Turkish imports, our, our steel imports, uh, we're going to go, we're going to turn around and do something, you know, back at you. It's a, it's a retaliatory yeah. si situation. And the facts, quite honestly, even though it backs up the, uh, the point that there is no issue whatsoever, uh, are irrelevant at this point. Yeah. when you're dealing with political situations. Apparently, America not the only country where politics get petty, tit-for-tat. Oh, absolutely. You know, posturing like this. Absolutely. And in some cases, it makes us look, our politics, and, and this is not a political statement. We are not doing political commentary on, no. this, on this program whatsoever. But it makes our politics almost look sane Yeah. at this point. Uh, obviously, as you can imagine, the reaction from the industry was, uh, was pretty quick. Uh, our good friend Chairman Mike Conaway of the House Agriculture Committee issued a statement actually this morning uh, about it. Now you have to let me read this because it it, it pretty much puts the uh, puts Conaway's uh, feelings behind everything in, into context. Uh, he's saying American cotton growers remain under assault, and the problems just keep coming. Just last week, China announced it will start selling off government-owned stockpiles a result of their reckless policy that has depressed world cotton prices and that continues to hang over the market. Add to that the fact that India's minimum support price and input subsidies have resulted, resulted in India topping China as the world's largest producer. Now Turkey, the nation's second largest cotton customer, is slapping U.S. cotton exporters with a 3% duty as retaliation against the U.S. investigation into Turkish steel exports. This investigation was blatant retaliation, violated WTO procedure, and was anything but transparent. The findings are baseless and the duties should be dropped immediately. Uh, gee, I don't know what else you could say. I don't think he minced words too much. No, he's good at that. He's very, very good yeah. at that. But the, uh, the action was also met with a great deal of opposition within Turkey. Uh, the Turkish textile industry 
uh, is not very happy with the uh, with the duty. Uh, they're basically saying that uh, U.S. The, the the duties that they're putting in place on the U.S. cotton are going to drive up costs for their own textile producers and end up hurting the competitiveness of Turkish textile imports as well. Uh, the head of the Istanbul Textile and Raw Materials Exporters Union, uh, whose members basically make up 70% uh, of the Turkish textile exports, are basically saying that the decision is going to increase their raw material costs by 2 to 3% and will affect price competitiveness uh, of the Turkish exports. That U.S. cotton has specialty uses within their industry. It's not something they can give up using and the industry is going to probably end up shouldering the costs and the uh, the inevitable backslide on, yeah. uh, on, on what they're going to have. So, uh, well, it's not, uh, I should know this, um, it's not a done deal, right? I mean, there's still rec we still have recourse within the framework of WTO to challenge this. Not only, between, not only with WTO, because... They, uh, this was an investigation that Turkey put in place outside uh, the WTO parameters. In fact, they never even consulted WTO yeah. on this. So yes, we, you know, the U.S. the cotton industry is 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 going to WTO to look for some, you know, some input and some relief on this. They're also still f considering uh, legal action through some of the Turkish courts. So uh, it's not something that's going to go away. Unfortunately, it's something that is in place right now. Uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out and, and what kind of success uh, the U.S. industry has uh, through other the other recourses that we have available. Very good, very good. All right, Jim, well, uh, I appreciate that update. We appreciate, uh, as always, you leading us in the hard news segment of the podcast. We want to hold up right there, and we're going to take a quick break, and we'll, when we come back, we are going to be bringing you guys a uh, the interview, the aforementioned interview that Jim conducted with Reese Langley, uh, who is the uh, of the National Cotton Council, while Jim was out there in Lubbock at the TCGA trade show. So stick with us; you won't want to miss that rundown of sort of all of Cotton's uh, goings on on Capitol Hill. So hang with us, and we will be right back. We're at the, uh, at the Texas Gin Show in Lubbock, Texas, uh, here in early April, and I'm visiting with uh, Reese Langley, who's Vice President of Washington Operations for the National Cotton Council. Uh, Reese was here to make a presentation to the uh, Plains Cotton Growers Annual Meeting. Reese, thank you for joining us today with uh, on the Cotton Connection. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. Well, it's uh, it's always fun to uh, to sit back at this point, particularly in, a, in an, an election year. Uh, to know that there's a lot of activity going on in Washington, a lot of activity going on around that will have some impact on Washington. Tell what's sort of the political feel or what's the, the general feeling going on in, in D.C. these days, not only about the election, but also about just the business that still has to be conducted. Well, certainly there are a number of items that Congress needs to try to address this year. And uh, with the election this fall and the political conventions, there's a really shortened timeline essentially from where we sit today until mid-July. 
that time frame that Congress has to get most of their work done, anything that doesn't happen by then is likely to slip into the lame duck session, which will come sometime in November, December after the election. So obviously the uh, annual appropriations process is a big a part of what Congress needs to do before the next fiscal year, starting October 1. I think at this point there is a very concerted effort by the leadership in both the House and Senate and on the appropriations committees to try to get as much of that work done as they can through what they call regular order or moving these individual bills. But it's been a long time since Congress has been able to accomplish that. And so while we'll probably see some effort on it over the next few weeks, uh, I think it's uh, our view that a very likely, very good likelihood that we could be back late this year in a situation where Congress has to pass one large spending package, which is what we saw happen last December. Mm -hmm. when, uh, when you say going into the appropriations bills, and I think you also mentioned in, in your discussion looking at some of the just you know the whole appropriations process, uh, how would how could this potentially impact agriculture? There's really two uh, two different. Um, areas within the appropriations process. One, specific to the Agriculture Appropriations Bill, which funds USDA and a few other agencies, but it includes critical funding for the cotton industry. It provides the source of funds, or a big source of the federal funds, for the boll weevil and pink bollworm eradication programs to try to complete that work, which for boll weevil is really now concentrated in South Texas along the Mexican border. There's also funding there for market development of, of export markets and uh, our other organization, sister organization, Cotton Council International, which conducts those marketing activities around the world, they rely heavily on those USDA funds through the market promotion programs. So making sure those are fully funded. And then there's um, funding through the Agricultural Research Service that allows the three cotton ginning labs that are lo located across the cotton belt to do critical research that benefits the ginning as well the ginning industry as well as producers to maintain and enhance cotton fiber quality and those type things and so making sure there's adequate funding in those areas is critical but then the other side of it is if these spending bills come to the house or senate floor that creates an opportunity an environment where uh, members that may be opposed to agriculture or certain programs have an opportunity to come in and try to amend things that had already been agreed to in the Farm Bill or um, impose additional restrictions on certain policies or try to reduce funding for crop insurance support, that type thing. So we're playing offense on some issues and then at the same time having to be prepared to defend these key policies if and when the bills come to the floor. Never an easy process to, no, sir. to try to work both sides of it. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion since the first of the year, actually since late last year, about the cottonseed designation. And um, a lot of talk, obviously there's been a lot of bipartisan support for that, uh, for that designation. Uh, we now know what Secretary Vilsack, uh, what his opinion and USDA's opinion about that process is. Where do we stand with that right now? and maybe with some other possible solutions for the short term. So, as you, you know and have reported on, we, we felt like the industry and uh, 
all of the organizations within, within the cotton industry uh, put a lot of effort into trying to build the case last fall and early this year for why making this cottonseed designation was so critical to the economic health of our industry. And we were so pleased with the very broad support we had in Congress and uh, from other commodity groups and farm organizations and just very grateful for the, the broad support. And of course, so we were disappointed when we uh, heard the secretary decide in February that he didn't believe this authority in the farm bill would allow him to make the designation. We think that would have been the best approach. It would have provided some, an interim bridge of support here to try to get us to the next farm bill. But nonetheless, we were also encouraged by the secretary also coupling with his decision to not do cottonseed, but offering an alternative that it, while it's a potential just a one-year uh, economic assistance, we uh, have been working very closely with the secretary and his staff to try to figure out how this, um, this program could be structured to make it the most meaningful and most effective for all producers across the cotton belt. And it's a, a unique, unique idea that USDA has put forward, a ginning cost share program to help offset a portion of a producer's ginning cost. And the reason for that approach is USDA has uh, broad authorities that they can utilize in certain situations, and one of those is to help facilitate marketing of commodities. And so the cotton having to be ginned before it can be marketed fits within this type of authority. And so I think we're in a uh, an encouraging place at this point with USDA. We've had a very good discussion with the secretary and his staff on the need for the program and, and, and how to look at structuring it. The big question remains is how what's the dollar level of funding that can be allocated to this program? And that's not something that is in the control of USDA, but rather the budget office at the White House. And so that's where we stand today as those conversations are taking place. And so we're in somewhat of a wait and see mode until we see uh, what agreement it, is reached, if there is one, and at what level of funding. And once that happens, then we feel like the rest of the pieces can fall into place relatively quickly to get this program set up and, and uh, on the ground. So we're cautiously optimistic, I would say, at this time that we can see something move forward in the coming weeks. But uh, again, it's just um, an uncertain time frame and uncertainty on overall level of support. And so it's because of that, and again, this being a one-time proposal by USDA, that we don't intend and have not given up on the cottonseed policy, but rather shifted our focus now back to Congress and trying to look for opportunities as we move forward to see if there's a way to get a cottonseed type policy in place uh, working through Congress and, and a legislative solution. When does the Farm Bill come up again? To be, to be opened and debated. Which I know, I know we, we just finished one in 2014 that was, that right. was about three years late. <laughs> so uh, when, when's the next cycle begin? Well, that, a very good question because this farm <laughs> bill, the 2014 farm bill, is scheduled to run through the 2008 crop. So if we stay on that schedule, you would expect a new farm bill beginning with the 2019 crop year. The um, I think there will be an effort 
after we get through the fall elections and the new Congress moves into 2017 and things get structured, uh, I think we'll see sometime in 2017 uh, potential hearings start looking ahead to the next Farm Bill and um, just trying to be prepared and hopefully there will be a, a desire and willingness by congressional leadership to try to get the next Farm Bill done before this one expires so it can be on time and not have to look at uh, extensions and that type sure. thing and the uncertainty that comes with that. Absolutely. The key leadership that we have in place on the, on the agriculture committees in both the House and Senate, uh, how many of those folks are up for re-election? I mean, do you look at and see any potential turnover as once we get through this, this election process and start moving? You know, once things settle down and see where we have to work with. Right. Well, so on the House Ag Committee, uh, all the House members are up for their two-year election. As far as the Agriculture Committee makeup in the new Congress, I don't know that we'll, we'll expect to see a huge turnover. There have been a few recent elections where we saw a lot of new faces on the Agriculture Committee, but I don't think we'll see that, that large turnover this time. And then in the Senate, uh, we, after last the 2014 elections, we did see several new faces on the Senate Agriculture Committee, particularly on the Republican side, mm -hmm. several of those senators from cotton belt states. So we're, we were encouraged by that, and of course they're not up for re-election yet. So I think we probably won't see a lot of turnover on either of the Ag Committees uh, unless something changes between now and the election. Sure. That's good. One of the other things you mentioned this morning in, in your presentation that I think would be of interest certainly to, you know, for the cotton market, can you explain a little bit more about the Commodity Marketing Certificate program sure. that, is, that has now been put in place for this year? So what is so critical for the cotton industry is the ability to utilize the marketing loan program as part as the marketing tool for cotton. And I think cotton is the of all the commodities that are eligible for the loan is the largest user of the marketing loan program. And so that's true for producers, whether they're marketing through cooperatives or private merchants or what other marketing avenue they may utilize. Mm -hmm. And so with the marketing loan providing just a core base level of support for cotton, it's important that all of the cotton produced, all bales are eligible for the loan and are not artificially limited in the amount of loan benefits that a producer can receive. And so since 2014, as we've seen cotton prices declining, and now for the 2015 crop marketing year and also part of the 2014 crop that was marketed, we had uh, prices at global prices at a level where the loan program was triggering benefits or payments. And so it's important that producers can can um, rely on that full support and not have that artificially limited because that can lead to a lot of negative consequences. If producers realize that they are not going to receive the full loan benefits because of a payment limitation that's artificially applied, then that cotton may not continue to flow to the marketplace and be orderly marketed. You could have a situation where cotton, and it could happen with other commodities as well, in a low price situation where that commodity essentially gets locked into the loan and ultimately is forfeited to USDA. And that's not a good situation for anyone. So to help avoid that, you need this ability to freely market all commodities or all cotton without it being limited. And so that's essentially what a commodity certificate does. We have had this 
certificate policy in the past. Anytime there's been a payment limitation on the loan program, it was coupled with certificates so that the loan program could function as intended. Unfortunately, with the 2014 Farm Bill, that dynamic changed where we had a payment limit reimposed on loan benefits, but no certificate to accompany that. And so that's why we had the effort in 2015 working through the appropriations process to try to get that certificate authority re reinstated. And uh, USDA, we think, has done a tremendous job of implementing that in a quick manner and making it available now uh, for use on the 2015 cotton crop and going forward. Okay, Reese, thank you. I know it's uh, it's been a busy day for you, and you've got to get back to back to Washington, where. Uh, we appreciate the, re the reminder that things are still working behind the scenes. There's still a lot of work to do. Uh, the National Cotton Council continues to do great work on behalf of the industry. Uh, while the rest of the country seems to you know, can focus on, on the presidential election and the primaries and, and the chaos that is likely to ensue between now and, and November. But uh, anyway, we thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, we'll be right back after this short break. So all right, that will just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We want to thank you again sincerely for joining us today. If you like what you're hearing, by all means, tell your farmer buddies about us. Tell them about this podcast. Um, you and they can get to our podcast in three easy ways. The first, you can go to cottongrower.com and search for Cotton Companion in the search bar there. You can also type, I'm including this in the first cottongrower.com into your search into your URL bar type cottongrower.com slash companion and it'll take you to the companion homepage uh, where you can choose which episode you want to listen to there the second way subscribe to our channel on iTunes if you are familiar with iTunes on your smartphone uh, just go ahead and subscribe to the channel uh, if you're if you're already sort of familiar with the process leave us a rating let us know what you think of the pod um, if you have an iPhone but aren't familiar with how to search a, a podcast, uh, it's relatively simple. Open up the iTunes app there, and in the search bar, just search for Cotton Companion, and uh, our little nice little logo will pop up. You'll be able to find us very easily. The third and final way to make sure you're receiving each installment of the Cotton Companion, which is bi-weekly, it comes out every two weeks, is to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. Uh, Jim here works hard to pack that thing with all of the relevant news of the day, and uh, they hit your email inbox every Tuesday morning like clockwork. Occasionally they will be there on Thursday mornings as well. Uh, you can do that by just going to the cottongrower.com homepage, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you will find a link that says subscribe to our e-newsletter. Uh, and from there you can just give us your email address and, and you'll be on your way. Uh, also, please make sure you're following us on social media if you do the social media thing. On Twitter, we are at Cotton Grower Mag, uh, and on Facebook, you can find us by searching for the uh, Cotton Grower Magazine in the search bar there. We hope that you are enjoying our latest issue, which at this point is the April issue. Uh, the May issue is to the printer now, and on the way to your mailbox, it should be hitting that around the end of the first week, beginning of the second week of May. Right. 
Okay, I'm, I'm slowly side-eyeing Jim to make sure I'm not lying to you guys. He, he assures me that's about right. Okay, uh, so uh, be on the lookout for that thing. It's a good one. I'll give it a little tease here. Our cover story is on sort of what we suspect is a looming acreage boom there in uh, Kansas, of all places. So um, kind of human interest read. We think that you guys will enjoy it. We also have a B update in that issue talks about some of the conflict that a lot of our extension guys saw at grower meetings this spring between row crop producers and beekeepers so um you won't want to miss that that issue this podcast is produced by mark antonelli he works at the mothership meister media worldwide in lovely willoughby ohio my name is beck barnes and i will be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of the cotton companion for now on behalf of my own cotton companion jim stebbin We wish you and your farm all the best.